invite the rest of you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2, this morning as we leave for a Sunday or two here. We'll not be here next week, but we'll have to start or resume our study in the book of Matthew next year. Uh, So, uh, uh, but uh, today I want to focus in on this Christmas season, and I want you to remind you, as we're just a couple of days away from Christmas, that uh, there's a tremendous truth of Christ's first coming to this earth and what it means for us today. I'm confident that most of you know what it means. Uh, in all of hu- human history, there has never been a more tender scene nor a scene more filled with meaning and with trust than this scene is described by Luke. Uh, often when my family would gather as, uh, as I was a boy, my dad would read from this passage. And when we have all of our family together, uh, many times I'll read from this passage as well. Now to be sure, we don't really have instruction about the celebration of Christmas in the Bible. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of controversy about celebrating uh, Christmas. We don't have any instruction about that. Uh, There's nothing in the Bible that says we can't do some things that maybe some people object to. But uh, uh, again, uh, you and I have liberty to remember and to rejoice in the fact that Christ was born as a baby and the reason that he came to this earth as a man was so that you and I could have a wonderful salvation. And uh, uh, we can look at different things aspects of Christmas and we say oh that came from this this and that and uh, I mean you have liberty to to uh, to do as as God directs you to as long as I believe you're focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, this morning I want us to look at five great truths about this story in such a way that we might see the real meaning of Christmas now I really gave kind of a uh, uh, I guess a uh, introduction to this last Sunday night in our Christmas program. And I, I gave you these five, but I didn't expand upon them. And that's what I want to do this morning. Uh, the first thing I want us to look at is that Christmas is of God's making, not man's. Christmas is of God's making, not man's. To be sure, much of what is done, again, as I was saying already, and how Christmas is celebrated today is of man's doing. Uh, But what I mean by this particular statement, Christmas is of God's making, not man's, is that it's all a part of God's master plan to bring about the events and the circumstances as we have them here in Luke chapter 2. We come to uh, this uh, particular uh, passage and we do not know the exact day that Christ was born. I do think there is good evidence that it was around this time of the year. Uh, I'll not get into all that this morning, but uh, we're we're given many details surrounding the wonderful event, and I think we're given the details that really matter. Notice the earthly conditions. It says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, it was, first of all, I want you to notice, in those days... In those days, a decree from Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus was the first emperor, Roman emperor. His real name was 
Caius Octavius, and he was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Now the term there, the, the, the name Augustus, is really, really his title. Uh, he took the name Caesar out of courtesy and out of adoption. Eventually the title Augustus would be dropped and Caesar would just become also a title, let alone a name. But at the time there, uh, at that time, there was some discussion about choosing a title. Uh, he rejected dictator. Uh, that suggested something temporary. He rejected king. Uh, that really didn't signify enough. And so he decided on Augustus. It comes from the word augur, which means religious sanction. You see, he was moving toward a claim of deity. Now, this was a time, it's known as Pax Romana. Now, if you all uh, remember your history lessons, as you should, because you were that was your favorite class, as I've often reminded you, Pax Romana means the peace of Rome. And uh, in those days, the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire. In those days, the Roman people were under despotic rule. In those days, the whole empire was coerced into submission. In those days, power was vested in one man. In those days, a decree that all the world should be taxed or they should be enrolled, registered. In those days, Jesus was born. This was a time when there was no war. Why? Well, it's because everyone, every man, woman, boy, and girl were under the thumb of Caesar Augustus, and no one dared complain or call his soul his own. It was a time when they were under the control of a tyrannical ruler. And so we have this decree, we, and we have two people, a man and a woman, two individuals out of all the multitudes of the Roman Empire that were to obey this decree. These two had not any more effect upon Caesar Augustus and the Roman Empire than any two of us here today would have any effect on the President of the United States. Unless there is someone more significant here today than I realize. But no one has been called recently, to my knowledge, out of this congregation by the President. Anybody been asked about the fiscal cliff from... Anybody got a call this week? I don't know. Maybe you got the call. I, I didn't get the call. But most of us have never, and I'm sure all of us have never gotten a call to ask our opinion or some advice concerning a decision or a policy. And just as you and I are entirely insignificant in regard to the leadership of our country, our president, we are all, a we are all touched, though, by his authority even as this man and this woman were touched by the Roman authority. And I want you to notice these two individuals. The woman, of course, Mary, in her womb is the tabernacle. Her womb is the tabernacle for the Son of God as she travels. The man, Joseph, the one passion of his life was to keep this woman safe, to guard this woman. And notice where they were going. They were going to Bethlehem. I got an email from Jay Armstead. He said, we're going to spend Christmas in Bethlehem. Wow. I guess if you live over in Israel, that's a lot easier to do than if we live here in Spooner. 
But they were going to Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary came out of Nazareth in Galilee and went into Judea to Bethlehem, the city of David. Joseph did this because he was of the house and the lineage of David. So why did Mary have to go to Bethlehem? Well, she was also of the lineage of David. The edict of Caesar Augustus touched everyone. Caesar Augustus attempted to make himself a god. He wanted to be worshipped. And so he signed a tax bill that caused a woman and a man, just poor folks living in Nazareth, to journey to Bethlehem to enroll. The woman was carrying in her womb the Son of God. Now, that's tremendous in itself. This Caesar Augustus tries to make himself God, but nobody today references him. We don't even think much about him other Christmas time. We might think about him when we read Luke chapter 2. And that's the only time through the whole year we even think about Caesar Augustus. No one pays taxes to him today. But here that little baby in Mary's womb is why we're here today. It's the reason why you and I have gathered on this Lord's Day to worship him and to call him our Savior. Now, was this just circumstance? No. Caesar Augustus was a tool in God's hand to bring to pass the prophecy that had been written 650 years earlier. Listen as I read Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall... He come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide for now he Shall he be great unto the ends of the earth? Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and 4. That was written 650 years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. You see, everything was happening just as God had arranged it to happen. If anyone had said to Caesar, wait a minute, hold, hold on here. Women are about to give birth and they're going to have to be moved in order for you to get your taxes. I think he would have said, uh, Forget the women. Forget those. And I just, I'm interested in the taxes. I'm only interested in armies. I'm only interested in what I can get. Well, all of that, the taxes and the armies and the luxury that he was accumulating to himself is all gone, including Caesar. Now, look at who is the insignificant one. Caesar Augustus. So Christmas is of God's making, not man's. Secondly, I want you to notice here that Christmas is a great story of humility. A great story of humility. Now, notice again the earthly conditions here. Notice the words, as it says, as they went in verse 3 to into his own city, Joseph went in from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. And they go down to verse 5 to be taxed. And so it was in verse 6 as they were the days were accomplished that she should be delivered and she brought forth 
Her firstborn son wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I want you to notice that phrase there. There was no room for them in the inn. What was the inn? Oh, we might imagine a motel. That's what we might think of. A motel or a hotel. Maybe not a Motel 6 or a Super 8 or a Comfort Inn. We wouldn't, we wouldn't go to that point. But we'd think, well, there's at least some kind of a, a building there that has rooms in it and people were staying overnight. We find the word in only used two times in the New Testament. There are actually two different time, or two different ways to translate this word in. One place is in the account of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his beast, and brought him in, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, that particular word in there is the word in the Greek, pandokion. And it means a public lodging place with a host and provisions and apartments or rooms. That's what we would imagine an inn to be. Now in our text though, we find another word for inn. In verse 7, here the word is kataluma. Now again, I'm not trying to show you my brilliance in Greek because I have none. I'm just trying to show you the difference. The, they're two completely different words. They're not even, they don't even sound the same in the Greek language, even though they've been interpreted the same word. And this word, kataluma, means merely an enclosure where travelers might put cattle or livestock for the night. It refers to a place to stay during the breaking up of a journey. There may be shelter there for the travelers to rest, but there's not going to be any food. There's not going to be any hosts. There's not going to be entertainment. There's only going to be maybe some water. I would compare it to a rest area out on the interstate that says no services. <laughs> you know, you find those rest areas and they're usually closed at this time of the year, but you usually find only for truckers to pull in or something. But there are really no bathrooms or no places to get food or anything like that. I think we just assume that there was an innkeeper, you know, because we always think it was a motel. And of course, we've always seen children's plays where Mary and Joseph come to an inn and then children's plays for Christmas, there's always an innkeeper, right? We have paintings that depict... Their arrival in Bethlehem, and perhaps we have a painting that you've seen in a book or someplace where Joseph is knocking on the door of an inn, and the innkeeper may be peeking around the door, telling them, no, there's no room, and no vacancy. But you know, that's really not what this word is in this passage. Perhaps there was someone there who was the owner. It could have been a person there that was in charge. That's no doubt uh, that could have been. But this place was a catalumen. It was not a pandonkian. This was a place where there was no room or rooms. 
And yet in the most important time, this was a place where a baby was to be born and the mother laid it in the manger, a feeding trough, most likely maybe made out of wood, but probably could have been made out of stone. There was no palace. There was no dwelling place. There was no motel. There was no room, even in the Cataluma. He was born outside of everything and even the place where the cattle might have been sheltered through the night. He was born and laid in a manger in some bleak enclosure outside this obscure dwelling. I hope I've painted the picture for you this morning about the earthly conditions and how Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth in a very humble way. When he passed the court and passed the palace and he passed the dwelling place, he passed the inns and he even passed the Cataluma and was born into this world in such a low estate, in such great humility. Paul says he made of himself no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And so it's only fitting that the one who, being found in fashion as a man, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and should he should have such a humble beginning here on earth. Christmas is of God's making, not man's. Christmas is a great story of humility. Number three this morning, Christmas is about God dealing simply with men who will simply believe him who will simply believe in him. Look at verse 14 and 15 of Luke chapter 2. Where the angels had come down and they were praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And it it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. I like the simplicity of the shepherd's faith. First of all, consider their limited knowledge. Consider their limited knowledge. We can assume that on all probability, these shepherds were poor, honest, and industrious, but basically unlearned men. They certainly were not the theologians of the day, Their knowledge of God would have been limited, yet these shepherds exercise faith that could help us be an example to us for a more mature Christianity today. The faith of the Bethlehem shepherds was so simple, was so sincere, it was genuine. Even a little child could understand and make that faith his own. The learning of schools and universities is important. But it's not the most important thing in life. There are some profound things in life, but not as profound as what happened this night in Bethlehem. And if you really uh, want to be profound, really want to be educated, you will bow with the shepherds and you will adore God who became human flesh. And you will do even more than that. You will open your heart and receive the one who came in human flesh and died so that you who are dead in your trespasses and sins might be made alive in Christ. You see, all learning begins with Christ. The Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God makes the profound and makes it simple because he does not have anyone to impress. 
Man, to be impressive, seeks to take the simple and make it sound complicated and profound. And yet how foolish that is because how good God is to take the profound and make it simple. What could be more profound than the truth that our God gave up heaven's glories to take upon himself human flesh and become a man to die for the sins of mankind? There isn't anything more profound than that. But not only consider their limited knowledge, but contemplate the angel's amazing announcement. These shepherds were out in the field near Bethlehem watching over their flocks during the night and suddenly the angel of the Lord came to them and they were terribly frightened because the glory of the Lord was radiating all around them in the night's darkness. But the angel had announced that they should not be afraid. He said in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And further, the angel told that they might be able, how they might be able to find and identify the Savior. It says in verse 12, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. This announcement was supported by the appearance of a multitude of angels. In our Sunday school class this morning, we talked a little bit about the angels. And we thought, what do you imagine? How many were there? 10, 20, 100, 1,000, a million? Abruptly, the heaven, heavens were lit up and there was a, an appearance of a multitude. That's all we're told. A multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. And just as abruptly as it was appearing to them, it was gone and they were they had disappeared. The shepherds were left alone in the field in the darkness with their flocks and had all of this really happened. They probably looked at each other kind of dumbfounded. What just happened here? What does it mean? Was it a dream or was it real? Well, even if it had happened, was it possible that they had mistaken what the angel had said? Now, that may sound familiar to you because we sometimes find ourselves asking questions about what we read in the Bible, don't we? Did God really say that? Uh, did we really understand what he said correctly? Or did we misinterpret what we read? Well, as we consider their limited knowledge and the amazing announcement from the angel, we must also marvel at the nature of their faith. Marvel at the nature of their faith. Evidently, there was no misgivings, no questions, no doubts in their minds because we see in verse 15, it came to pass as the angels were gone away from heaven, the shepherds said one to another, let us go. Let us go. Many times I think we've thought it said, let us go and see if this thing has come to pass. Let us go to see if this is really true. But no, look at what they said. Look at it carefully. Let us go now. Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass. We're not going to go there to see if it happened, to see if those angels knew what they were talking about, see if this was a dream or not. 
They were persuaded in what they had seen. These shepherds had not sent an acquaintance or a friend ahead of them. Hey, go tell us, go see if this is really true. No, they all believed outright the thing that was told them that the Savior was born. How could they be so sure? How could they speak so confidently? Were they just being carried away on impulse? Was it just an emotional thing? What reason did they have to say that this thing had happened? Well, because God said it happened. God said it, and that's reason enough. And so the faith of the, Beth, uh, of the Bethlehem was just this. They believed the word of God. The Lord knew certain facts or made known certain facts unto them by the angels who announced that the Savior, Christ the Lord, had come and was in a manger in Bethlehem, the city of David. And because God had declared these facts to them through the mouthpiece of the angel, the shepherds knew the facts were true. And they knew it just as confidently before they saw baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger as they did after they had seen him. They did not need to go and to see if, in order to see if this had come to pass, they said confidently, joyfully, one to another, we're going to go because this thing has happened. We're going to go see it. Someone has appropriately said, when God says something is, let us never substitute the word if. Someone else said, Satan tried to get the Lord Jesus to do this in Christ's victory over Satan three times was because Christ refused to accept Satan's substitute of if for God is, is, for God's is. At the time of the baptism of the Lord Jesus, God spoke from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, there on the mountain of Mount of Transfiguration, the devil three times attacked our, our Savior with, if thou be the Son of God. And three times the Son of God soundly defeated Satan confidently, unquestioningly holding to God's is. It is written. So right now, moment by moment, in tension and the threat of these days of our lives, our hope for time and eternity is to have faith the same a faith experience as the shepherds of Bethlehem. They simply and totally believed God's message was true. Number one, Christmas is of God's making, not man's. Christmas is a great story of humility. Thirdly, Christmas is about God's dealing simply with men who will simply obey or believe in him. Simply will believe in him. There's a fourth great truth for and we need to be reminded of this again at Christmas season, and that is that Christmas is for the glory of God, not for the greed of men. Of course, we live in a day when Christmas is celebrated with a great commercialism and materialism, and it's absolutely vital for us to remember the fact that Jesus Christ came in human flesh to die. And this points to two important things for us. Number one, Jesus came in human flesh so that we might be able to see God. That we might be able to see God. When I say us, I refer to mankind. 
Of course, Jesus is no longer visible on this earth for he's returned to heaven. But these shepherds of Bethlehem saw Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, they saw the manifestation of God. He is God for us to see with the eye of faith. He is God for us to see with through the written word of God. Colossians 1.15 says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? It is impossible to get to God except through Jesus Christ our Lord. No man can see God except he sees Jesus Christ. Some people are trying to see God through good works. Some are trying to see God through church attendance. Some are trying to see God through prayers and penance. But they have never seen his son through the eye of believing faith. So they have not seen God. You know, we have a multitude of religious people today who claim to know and believe God, but they want nothing to do with trusting Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. There's a multitude of people today who talk about God, but in actuality know nothing of true faith in the God of heaven. Jesus very clearly, plainly said, I am the way, the truth, and no man Uh, And the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then in John 14, he went on to say, If ye had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me, hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father uh, the, the Father in, uh, in me. I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and else believe me of the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the work's That I do shall he also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father, and whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye ask anything in my name, I will do it. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Have you seen the true and the living God of heaven, the God of the Bible? You haven't unless you place your faith, faith in Jesus Christ who came to this earth as a little baby and was born to die. Now that leads us to a second important thing here about Christmas being for the glory of God, not for the greed of men. Yes, Jesus came in human flesh that we might be able to see God, but notice also the Lord came in human flesh to die for the redemption of man. Man has neither the inclination nor the ability to redeem himself. Hebrews 2 and verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil. And that's why Jesus Christ was born in the human flesh. And I believe the statement emphasizes the Lord's incarnation. As children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same, Christ came in a way that they were not expecting him to come. And yet they should have known because the prophets made it clear he would come to this earth the first time. And someone has put it this way. They were looking for a king to slay their foes and lift them high. 
Thou camest as a baby thing that made a woman cry. Because we are made of flesh and blood, he took upon himself flesh and blood. And he came into this world by human birth, just like you and I came into this world. Through death, he might destroy him. Christ Jesus came not only through birth, his birth didn't save anyone, but through through his death. It's by his death he saves us, not by his birth, not by his life, but his death brought salvation, deliverance from the spiritual and eternal death. Again, he was born to die. On Calvary's cross, he paid the full redemption price for our sin. Hallelujah. Christmas is of God's making, not man's. Christmas is a great story of humility. Christmas is about God's dealing simply with men who will simply believe in him. And then Christmas is for the glory of God, not the greed of men. And finally, Christmas is about Christ alone being the center of attention. The center of attention. The shepherds did not come to see Mary and Joseph. We said this morning in our Sunday school class, you know, the shepherds didn't go, boy, you should go see, uh, we should go see that Mary and Joseph. Let's go see those cute little animals in the, in the uh, manger there. No, they went to see Jesus. He was the center of attention. Uh, they did not come to see gold, for there was no gold. Uh, there was no splendor, no purple, scarlet, and there was no political reason to draw them. The shepherds did not have anybody to impress. They were not after anything. They simply just came to stand in awe and adore the Lord of heaven uh, who had come into this world in human flesh. In the chill of that night, they came to the stable to see Christ, uh, Christ child lying in that simple stra- uh, straw in a lowly manger, a feeding trough. They came to see him. And my desire is that you will see him at this Christmas season as well. It would make Christmas have meaning for you. If you do not see him, the meaning of Christmas is lost because you are lost to Jesus Christ. The Christmas carols mean nothing to you if you've not seen Jesus Christ. Those who have him and who have seen him sing Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, Offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Believers in Christ, sing glory to God of heaven, to the God of heaven, and I pray that you will know as well him in such a way so that you might have the glory of heaven in your heart and your life. Let me just quote a great Bible teacher of the past who said, each recurring Christmas tide gives occasion to emphasize anew the wonderful story of the love of God that led him to send his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Christianity rests on three great pillars, the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Incarnation could not redeem sinful men, but apart from incarnation, there would be no propitiatory sacrifice that would avail to put away sin. 
We cannot therefore take too much of the mystery of the union of human and divine in him who was both the son of God and the son of Mary. Bethlehem, Calvary, and the empty tomb alike should stir our souls and draw our hearts out out to God in wonder, love, and praise. I believe these are five wonderful truths that make Christmas meaningful. Christmas is of God's making, not man's. Christmas is a great story of humility. Christmas is about dealing, uh, God dealing simply with men who will simply believe in him. Christmas is for the glory of God, not for the greed of men. And Christmas is about Christ alone being the center of attention. I trust he's the center of your Christmas as well.